Welcome to On Balance. I'm your host, Dr. Rod Berger. I'll be your guide as we explore the stories of today with the personalities impacting tomorrow. Welcome to On Balance. I'm your host, Dr. Rod Berger. We're spending time with Alan Pesky. He is the author of the new book, More to Life Than More, a memoir of misunderstanding, loss, and learning. Alan, it's a great pleasure to, to spend time with you. I would tell you that I'm very conflicted in my preparation for this discussion because while I could focus on the surface of, of the efforts and the work that's been done, and we will dive into special education and the business of that, and potentially the, the implications of not uh, addressing needs in the space of early learning, I'd be remiss if I didn't just connect with you as a father and that decision that was made to write a book uh, like you did in this memoir. If you can speak a little bit about the, the jacket that you might wear, uh, whether that is dad, advocate, leader, a voice in the space, what, what resonates with you at this point in time and why the book now? The book, uh, Rod, um, didn't come about because I sat down one day and said, I want to write this story. Um, the, the book came about because uh, um, I've, I've always been curious about what's inside my head. Um, one of my dreams was uh, to... Um, for my 50th birthday was to go off to the, the, the house on Golden Pond uh, with a big stack of yellow pads because I come from the generation that did things with yellow pads and a pen and a lot of good music and spend uh, 30 days and just try to find out what's going on inside my head. That never came about, um, uh, but um, I, I had a very good friend out here in uh, Sun Valley who, uh, uh, who is now the head of Macmillan Publishing, a man named Don Weisberg. And uh, Don and I uh, connected because we sort of loved the outdoors and we would go snowshoeing together when he was out here on holiday uh, uh, and had the time or we'd play some golf together in the summer. And uh, he knew a lot about my background. And he said, you know, you ought to write, you ought to write a, your memoir. And I said, uh, that's very nice, but I really don't have the time or the energy uh, at this stage in my life. I've got a lot going on for somebody who uh, is up in his 80s. And um, uh, I, I just didn't, I just couldn't see myself spending the time doing that. And one day he said to me over breakfast, he said, you know, uh, a lot of people who write memoirs don't write it by themselves. They write it with somebody. Uh, most uh, autobiographies, uh, you know, have somebody that the person's writing it with. A lot of times it's hidden. The name doesn't come out, but they, uh, uh, they're working with someone. And he recommended a writer to me. He said, this is probably as good a ghostwriter as I know. And uh, I met with the guy four times and uh, uh, I just was not, not comfortable with him in terms of opening up what's inside my head. And then a friend out here, um, uh, a woman whose uh, uh, father wrote an autobiography, uh, he wrote it with an Emmy Award winning producer on uh, public broadcasting. And I met with him and after one meeting, uh, that was the end of it. 
we have a, um, a wonderful library out here in Sun Valley with an extraordinary librarian. And um, I, I said to her one day, I said, Jenny, you know, if you ever run across somebody who might be interested in working with me, writing my memoir, let me know. About a year and a half later, she sent somebody over to see me. And I sat down with Claudia, who, uh, when I said to her, can you give me some examples of books you've written or worked on? She said, well, I've never written a book. I said, that's interesting. I said, you're sitting here and, and you've never written a book. I said, I've never written a book except maybe a 12-page a uh, children's book. Uh, and we, after the uh, discussion, uh, I said, there's something about this gal that I, I, I just feel comfortable with talking with and so forth. We met three times and I popped the question. I said, would you like to uh, take on working with me on trying to write my memoir? And um, she went back and she read up, what, how, how do you write a memoir? <laughs> <laughs> how do you put together a proposal? And three years later, the book that you read is what we produced. Um, uh, I, I found it you know, quite, quite fascinating that two people who never wrote a book could put together a book like that, that really digs very deep down. And um, as we started to talk, we really didn't have a, uh, an end line in, in mind. We, didn't, we really didn't know the road we were going down. I opened up 30 or 40 people that I knew and contacted them and said, I'm uh, in the process of writing a book with this uh, Claudia Olam. And uh, uh, would you be good enough to sit down and talk with her and tell, you know, answer the questions? And if there's anything in the discussion that you have that you don't particularly care to uh, have me know, I said, that's fine with me. I said, you know, I want you to be open and I want you to be honest. And after about three months of doing that, she and I sat down and we started to dig. And um, uh, the, the underlying theme of the book about the relationship with my son, Lee, is, you know, probably with, without a doubt, the most difficult relationship in my, uh, in my, in my adult lifetime. Um, and uh, it wasn't because it was, uh, there was something awful that went on. It was something that just uh, was based on the way I was living my life, what was important to me, what I was striving for. And I found out as we went along and dug deeper and deeper that this is really not what I am very happy about. I was, I was, I'm very happy at the end of the book because I look at things that bothered me about the relationship with my son that I say, God damn it, I admire that kid for doing what he did. The, the story with a dirt bike. I mean, here I was, my life was living white tennis, uh, you know, I was living F. Scott Fitzgerald out in the Hamptons uh, with the great Gatsby. Um, uh, you know, and he was, you know, he wanted to, you know, ride a dirt bike. Well, I look back on it now and say, well, why shouldn't he have wanted to ride a dirt bike? That was something he loved, something that, that you know, fascinated him. And 
that led me to the understanding of, you know, loving the child that you have for what they are, not loving a child because that child is fulfilling the dream of what you always wanted that child to be. And, and I came to great grips in, in, in doing that about really what's, what the hell, you know, what is important about that? That's not only your relationship with a child, that could be your relationship with your spouse, you could be people you work with, uh, you know, and, and I've been stung by people I thought were terrific, who turned out to be, you know, terrible. Uh, so it's, you know, it's not what you, it's not necessarily what I want. It's necessarily of understanding the person that I am dealing with. Can you, can you walk me into, I don't know, maybe we use the visual of a kitchen or, you know, when it, the book talks about this misunderstanding, a relationship based on misunderstanding. And I think about education and, and you and I both work in education and collaborate and advocate and speak and interface with people that care a great deal but this concept of misunderstanding is, I think, much broader and deeper than we ever give it credit for, right? There's funding tied to it. There are implications of how we even think about construction classrooms and response to nerve. There are all kinds of, it's just a very loaded kind of term. But take me back to, to Lee. And, and when you think about what you were misunderstanding back when he was a young child, what did misunderstanding look like? And what have you learned about yourself through that term now, so many years later? What, what, it, what it looked like uh, back in the uh, early days of Lee was he, he was going to, we, we put him in the New Canaan Country School. And if you know New Canaan, you probably have a pretty good understanding of what the New Canaan Country School, it was a, um, it was a, the public school, a big private school in the area. It was uh, made up of families that uh, were coming from this um, elite uh, social strata, um, uh, lawyers, uh, people in the financial community, people in the advertising field, et cetera. Um, and I'll call it the, you know, white, the white shoes, the white, the, the white shoe world out there. And um, uh, the school, uh, uh, you know, opposed uh, itself as being a school that uh, had great feeling and empathy. We do not have um, we do not have grades in the early years because we want the child to be able to express themselves. Well, that was a lot of baloney. They uh, they may not have had grades, but they had uh, um, boundaries of what they expected in the child that goes to their school. And uh, Lee was um, a you know, pretty, uh, pretty free-thinking kid. He, um, uh, and uh, somewhere, I think, in the second or third grade, the headmaster called us in, my wife and myself, and they say, you know, our children are doing this and our children are doing that. And, you know, maybe there's another school for Lee. And uh, that sort of uh, pissed me off. Uh, I, I, I said, but why? And they said, well, you know, this is what we expect the child. We expect this much progress to be occurring. And that's not, you know, maybe Lee's immature and maybe he's going to come about. And I got very annoyed at that. 
And I got very, very annoyed. I said, you, you have no real way of making a judgment of why he shouldn't be at this school. Maybe, maybe he shouldn't have been at that school. Maybe I shouldn't have forced to put the round peg into the square hole. Um, but I did. And I did because part of it was um, uh, my ego. Part of it was that I put uh, my wife and I put our child into the school, and therefore we want him to succeed in that school. Um, and um, uh, how much of that was a reflection or a fear that it reflected something on you? I think yeah. that that's a struggle as humans that in the moment it might be about Lee, but right, we extend out and it's really a reflection positively or negatively about our own abilities or lack thereof or challenges. Exactly. There's the, the, I, I, I uh, talk in the book about a mentor that I had. Uh, he was so much smarter than me and so much more uh, everything, except maybe in, in his human relationships. Uh, but he, um, he, he, he gave me an expression um, when I was writing. And I, I, I did a lot of, uh, I do a lot of writing for the Lee Pesky Learning Center and fundraising and in and, 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 uh, and strategy statements and so forth. And the comment he said to me is, is, Alan, think with the other person's head. He said, when you write, he said, don't, he said, everybody knows they're writing for somebody out there, but take it the step further and when you write something, pick yourself up and walk to the other side of the room and say, okay, I am the person that just received this. And read it as if you are Jack Jones or Rod Berger or Pooja Sanger or something like that. And, and I, this is constantly goes on in my head when I'm doing things of trying to think of the, I'm the other person. We, we all, all of us, have this this feeling inside themselves of course I'm, I'm doing I, 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 I'm thinking about the other person but we really don't this makes it absolutely conscious in my head that I I am not I am not Alan here I am so so and so over there and it's become very effective for me it's something that I chat with my grandchildren about um, it, it's uh, you know, the, the same person said to me, whenever you write, Alan, he said, uh, write for a 14-year-old person uh, that you want that person to understand what you are writing about. He says, that'll make it nice and clear that it isn't off up in somewhere up in the uh, ether up there. <laughs> if, we, if, we were to, if we were to take the challenges that were presented to you and your wife in that meeting years ago about your son into today's school environment, mm -hmm. what challenges would they be associating with, with kids like Lee? I, I think that, that for, first of all, I'm putting it in the context of being out here in Idaho, which is different than being in New York City or in Chicago or someplace like that. Um, a lot of it is uh, because um, uh, legislative um, uh, uh, beliefs that we have out here. A lot of it is, uh, some of it is uh, governed by religion uh, and, and various other. We, we tend in our, in our, in our um, schools to have uh, uh, put kids in a box. 
that this is, th these are the walls around a child. And, and especially in the area of special education, because if you, teachers now, especially out here in Idaho, go into teaching and they may have had one class or two classes in the School of Education uh, on special education, how to recognize it, how to say that, you know, that uh, maybe this kid just, uh, you know, has maybe has dyslexia. How do you know that the kid has dyslexia? Well, you don't know it if you don't have any understand of it. That's why we have a, a very strong movement starting to occur in this um, country on social emotional learning. That to teach the teach that to get the teachers to try to understand more about why a child is functioning the way they are, and most importantly to try to work with children so that they can understand themselves better. And this is a, we still got a long, long way to go in this arena, but there is, the, we, we got a major grant from the Kellogg Foundation uh, for the work we would, uh, it's a million dollar grant at the Lee Pesky Learning Center because of the work we were doing with a couple of school districts here, working with the teachers, and also doing work with the kids in the school. Um, you know, hopefully down the line, there's gonna be much more of an understanding that it isn't what has been written down as the um, walls that the kid has put into this, into this box, but that, 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 that those walls are, you know, every child has their own fingerprint. Every child has their own, um, they're different. And the way our system is, is worked out is that we treat it that every child isn't different. That every child, you know, in order to, uh, to do what we want has to function within the boundaries that we place out there. You're listening to On Balance. I'm your host, Dr. Rod Berger. If you've got a story we should know about, connect with us through social media. We also want to thank our presenting sponsor, Strategist Group, Developing and influencing through change expertise. Now, back to the discussion. What have you learned about the business of special education, Alan? When you ask me the, when you, are you talking about the Lee Pesky Learning Center? Yeah, I'm, well, I'm just talking in general to, to you as someone who's worked in the space, who was maybe, maybe pushed into the space through tragedy and, and just reflection. You know, I, I think it's interesting because you know, sadly in education, if we can find dollars for something, we're going to put it to the top of the list. If we can, and find, sorry, if we can find dollars, if we can find dollars and financing, then we find really neat boxes to put kids in assessments. You know, we track and all these sorts of things. Right. And then you've got, you know, I mean, education is second in GDP to healthcare in this country. This is not a small <laughs> mom and pop operation yet special education, you've got all these groups that feel marginalized, and I think rightfully so. And sometimes I've, it almost feels like we need to put a lens on it or a filter that is more businesslike so that we can really start to break down and understand what are the true needs here? How do we not address the Lee Peskies of the world that now living in 2021 as first graders, second graders, third graders as to what their needs are, and then provide the, the adequate supports needed, and then some. 
I, I think if we were to, to, to look at educational systems, um, uh, we would find that in this country, we have probably got uh, uh, in place uh, all the understanding that can rival any, any country in the world. Yet uh, we've gone from being number one, how many years back, I'm not sure, to being what's considered maybe number 20 right now. Because one thing is being able to have the understanding and um, the ability, and the other side of it is the execution. And I think the problem that we, a great deal of what we have in this country is the fact that we can take what we know and put it into effect and put it into effect correctly. And a lot of that is based on the fact that we don't have the money. I mean, why, are, why, do, why do we have a system in this country where teachers are, are treated in a manner, and I'm not going to equate them with any other, any, any other working group in this country, but are treated in such a way that they are not, they are not given, I mean, they, they, they deserve the respect that our firefighters get, our firefighters get, the respect that our policemen get, the respect that our military gets nowadays, and they deserve it. All of them deserve it, but so do our teachers. And our teachers are not held up in that regard in this country. I mean, the, the, uh, I, I can get into it if you want, and it, it led to something that, uh, 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 and, and I don't want it to sound egotistical, but it was an award that my wife and I established at Boise State University um, that um, uh, came about because of the discussion I had with the uh, president of the university at a dinner and it was in 2008 when the um, uh, financial world was cratering. And um, at the end of dinner, I said, you know, you know, Bob, nothing pisses me off more than the respect that we have for our teachers. Look what's happening in our state. Salaries are frozen. Bonuses are being cut back. Our teachers are, you know, they don't even have a, uh, a livable wage. So he said, well, what do you want to do about it? I said, well, here you are, you're running in a, a university with 20 plus thousand students. Uh, let's do something that, honor, that, that, that you regard as a, a way to honor teachers. And it came about that we established an award for inspirational teaching. The only award given out at Boise State's winter graduation is for lack of a better name, the Pesky Award for Inspirational Teaching. Every graduating senior in the College of Education can nominate a teacher who inspired them to become a teacher by the, 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 the um, relationship that that, uh, that who was now a graduating senior had that somewhere along their educational path. And four of those teachers will be selected to come to graduation and they will receive 25, they will be, they, they will be honored on the stage at graduation, uh, they will receive a check for $2,500. Each of their schools will receive a check for $500. We will have a big luncheon afterwards and we will have a, you know, a, a lovely ceremony after graduation. Well, the president of the university said, this is my favorite thing that goes on throughout the entire year that I am at this institution. 
um, teachers break down and cry. And they said, I've been teaching for 25 years and this is the first time somebody's recognized me. Um, and, uh, and, you know, I, I said, can you imagine with 1300 colleges of education in this country, if every one of them found an alumnus and they can easily find an alumnus who they who will put up the ten or fifteen thousand dollars to honor teachers like that, you'd have seven or eight thousand teachers, and this would send out a message to this country. So you know, um, uh, I, I'm I'm going all over the lot with you, Rod. Here, but no, it it it, it look it communicates. I think what I'm interpreting is sort of what you've learned just as a, as a man, as a human being through these experiences. A question that I have is I can't, and, and I don't think anybody can put themselves in your shoes and, and, and the shoes of your wife in, in, in losing a child. But what I have already learned in our experience, just even in this conversation is this, there's a motor to you. There's an energy um, that seems to be just, self-propelling um, because you, you could probably, you know, cash your chips in and just sort of hang out there in Sun Valley, <laughs> uh, but you choose not to, right? And so you keep, you seem to be a very curious, you have a curious mind. I want to understand the role of forgiveness in misunderstanding. So where would you say that you are in your own life's journey and forgiving yourself around the misunderstandings that you may have had as a parent decades ago? I don't look at things that I have done in my lifetime um, uh, that were cruel or mean or something like that. I think that I was trying to be the best father I could have been, the best husband I could be. My wife and I are married 60 years, uh, the, the best, you know. Um, uh, yeah, there are bumps in the road and there are potholes that, you know, I fell into. Um, I don't in any way look back at my life and really uh, say, uh, you knowingly did something that was, that, that was harmful. Um, I, I, I it, you know, if you look at my background, and if you, you know the Bronx, I, you know, I was born in the Bronx and I grew up in Queens and uh, I went to what was the largest high school in America at that time, Jamaica High School. And, um, uh, you know, uh, I, I aspired to, to be able to achieve success, which meant financial success and um, uh, be able to do things for my family the way. And in, in, in striving to do that, that was what was important to me at that stage in my life. But however, you know, losing a child, uh, having, having, the re having the impact that had on me and, and living out in the, you know, a, a, an area like Sun Valley with, you know, wealth all around the place with uh, uh, watching how people, you know, how they live their life, uh, I feel very content. I don't feel I have, uh, I feel very content that the road, I'm, the road I have traveled, the low road less traveled, I think Robert Frost said or something like that. Uh, the road I travel is, the, is, is, is I, I feel very relieved 
I feel writing this book has opened up my, um, uh, opened me up to understand what at this stage in my life, looking back, I'm very happy with what's happened. Um, I wish that my son were here, that I could talk to him in this way. I, I, I wish that I could put my arm around him and hug him and say, you know, you know, I, I was pretty tough. I, I, you know, you were right and I was wrong. Um, uh, and that, you know, the things you wanted and the things you did, you know, bothered the hell out of me at that time. But now I look at you and say, you were a pretty goddamn terrific kid. And, you know, so, so I, I, I don't have regrets, Rod. I, I don't have any regrets. Do you feel closer to Lee now, given the day-to-day -day work and the, and the Lee Pesky sent all of that, than you, than you could have ever imagined? I, I can't tell you how, how true that statement is. I look at pictures now, and my, I, I, have, I had all the pictures cataloged by a professional program. We had 60,000 photographs taken over the years, being in the advertising business. I was able to do anything I wanted when it came to the weekends and photographing. I look at pictures of Lee now, and, I, and every single one of them, I just look at him and I just want to hug him. Uh, there's the, the, the smile on his face. The, there's a wonderful picture of me, my arm around him in the backyard. I never looked at that picture before in the way I look at it now. God, I, I you know, uh, my other two children, uh, you know, when the, we finished the manuscript of the book, um, I was warned, don't have your wife look at what you're writing. Um, <laughs> you know, and there was no way I couldn't have my wife. I didn't want to talk about anything, especially getting into those very sensitive moments of, lose, of, of, of Lee being ill. And also my two other children. And my two other children just say, oh, we, we learned so much more about our brother. Uh, you know, you know, we, we understand so much more. Thank you. Thank you for writing the book the way you did. Um, uh, yeah, that this, uh, yeah, what one, I'll tell you another interesting thing. Um, uh, I am getting letters now from people or uh, I belong to the Valley Club, the private golf club in the Sun Valley area. And the general manager of the golf club is a very nice guy, very uh, uh, you know, unemotional, what a general manager of a country club usually is, very friendly, smiles at everybody, even though underneath he's probably saying that son of a bitch, you know, he's really <laughs> you know, complaining all the time. But um, uh, when the book came out, I said, Barry, uh, I've written a memoir and uh, you know, I don't know if this would have any uh, interest for our membership, but let me give you a copy of it. And if you like what you see, can with the book be put in the golf shop and maybe in your letter that goes out? And three weeks later, I went to the club. Uh, he saw me and he had a mask on and he walked over to my wife and myself. And I looked at his eyes. And there were tears in his eyes. He said, I, I, I cannot tell you how impactful your book has been. He said, I've got a child that's a problem for me. 
he said, and in reading what you wrote, he said, I cried throughout the entire book. And I've had a, I've had numerous people, and you can draw your own conclusions. This, this book cuts pretty deep in a father admitting uh, uh, his relationship with a child. Very few people that I'm aware of have children where there isn't, if they have more than one child, you know, that no, no, all children aren't equal. There's going to be one that, that that's going to probably be your favorite, and there's going to be one that probably isn't your favorite. And um, you can have some that are going to be problems. And uh, that that's not the end of the world if a child's a problem. It, it's the it's your understanding of that child. So I'm finding that this book is giving it's giving them the opportunity to open themselves up. It's giving them the opportunity to say, hey, I'm looking at that child, my child differently now. And I think that's pretty neat. I think that is something that, that if I can open that up for lots of other people, that's the biggest reward I can get from this book. Um, let's, let's close with this, Alan. What is your message to parents who think that they are alone outside of the father-son relationship that you just so eloquently uh, walked us through? But when we think about I mean, I countless experiences personally of, of families where you can tell that they suspect there might be a challenge or two going on with a child. But again, it goes back to it. It's more potentially about them and their their reticence to, to even explore it because it may or may not impact what they know or what they've built, right? And so what is your message to a parent when it comes to advocating, um, not only for that child, but for their own voice, I think is even more important because I think the, re the result of a parent finding their voice is in uh, what we can then offer our children through different programs like you offer at the Lee uh, Pesky Learning Center. This is a tough question. Um, which makes it a good question. Um, uh, the, last, the, the, the last line in the book, if you remember, it says, let me tell you about Lee. And uh, it, it was a, um, somebody who's in the, right here in the building where I'm sitting, who's a, um, um, uh, a mediator and a therapist and so forth. And he was telling me a story about one of his clients who had a child um, uh, who was causing him enormous problems. And, um, uh, you know, uh, I, I was conflicted when, I, when he came down and talked to me. And I said, look, I can understand why he's pissed off. But on the other hand, um, also, it's, does he understand why his child is acting the way he's, he's acting? Uh, you know, let me tell you about Lee. You know, somebody asked me, and I'm, boy, I'm bouncing off the wall again, probably of ADHD. Um, uh, uh, I understand you, Alan. <laughs> uh, I hope so. <laughs> Although I consider this a successful discussion if you do. Um, uh, and now I forget it, 88 years of age. <laughs> it's, it's, it's sometimes, uh, you know, a, a thought uh, flies out of my head that's in there. You know, somebody asked me what we do at Lee Pesky Learning Center. 
And uh, I could sit down and say to them, we work with children who have learning problems to give them all the tools to be able to succeed with, you know, to, to maximum, to, to achieve their potential in learning, well, hopefully their potential in life. Um, but much more than that, uh, we're, in the, we're in the business of saving lives. We're in the business when a child has a learning disability, there are so many families that are so unwilling to recognize the fact that their child isn't, isn't performing up to where they want that child to perform. Um, and it isn't the child's fault. So the, the, there's an expression, there are a couple of expressions that we have at the Lee Pesky Learning Center. And one of them is that we're in, this, we're in the business of saving lives. We're in the business of saving families because a child who has a learning disability isn't the child. It's everybody around the child who doesn't understand why that child isn't performing up to where either they expect it or the school system that they're involved in expects it. And, um, uh, and what does that really boil down to? That really boils down to saving marriages. Uh, it boils down to, uh, uh, to taking a child who, where, where, this is, where this is part of their life going along and all of a sudden the child is, is being told, look, you have a problem reading. You know why you have a child problem reading? Because there are three billion connections that are inside that head of yours. And when a few of them go off in a different direction, you're going to do things a little bit differently than the way everybody expects it. But you know something? You're not going to write the great American novel, but you might, you might build a great bridge, or you might be a great artist, or you might play the cello beautifully. You're going to find something that's going to be yours, and it's not going to be theirs. And theirs is what really causes the problem, not yours. Well, I, I feel like we could chat for hours and and more importantly it would be more a uh, father to father conversation it, it takes me i have a nine and seven year old who you know quite often will say daddy you don't get it maybe there's something to that statement <laughs> it's more about me than it is them this conversation goes no further rod we uh i, I enjoyed <laughs> your questions and i hope i hope I, uh, your your seven-year-old just blossoms beautifully uh, well it's been incredible to connect with you i want to thank Alan Pesky, the author of More to Life Than More, a memoir of misunderstanding, loss, and learning. Uh, I'm your host, Dr. Rod Berger. Thank you. This concludes another chapter of On Balance. Connect with me via LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. I'm Dr. Rod Berger.